So today we're, we're going to be in Psalm 21. And as I was studying this psalm, thinking about current events and thinking about how the Lord, the Lord's word always speaks to us, it gives us a relevant word, a word in season. His word is never irrelevant. His word is never something that doesn't really apply to today. Amen? And uh, so I think this morning, my prayer is that as we look at Psalm 21 this morning, that the Lord will uh, encourage us, even in light of what's happening in our world today. Um, but I want to open up just with a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to get into Psalm 21 here this morning. So Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the uh, the way that it speaks to us. Lord, that your word is never... It will never return void, but it will always accomplish what you send it for. And Lord, we thank you that your word bears fruit, that your word speaks to us, that your word comforts us, it builds us up, it edifies us, it strengthens us. And so, Lord, I pray that your word today, this morning as we hear it, would strengthen us, would encourage us, would comfort us. Lord, that we'd be built up and edified by your word today that you'd be uh, with me as, Lord, as I speak, that your word, Lord, would be on my lips, that we would be able to receive what you have for us today in your word. And, Lord, we thank you again for it today. We thank you for the word about Christ. Let it dwell in us richly, Lord, that we could teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Lord, we do thank you today. Let our hearts abound in thanksgiving today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I titled the message today, You're in Good Hands. And I'm not talking about all state insurance. <laughs> but we're in good hands. And I want to read the Psalm first, Psalm 21 here. If you want to open up your, your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Starting in verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings, and you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever, and you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved." Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. And though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, and you will aim at their faces with your bows, 
Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Amen. So in times like this, it's important for us to know that we're in good hands. With so much instability around the world and even here at home, there is one thing that we can rely on. There's one thing, and we rely on what God has said. Amen? More specifically, what is said here in this psalm about the king and the kingdom to which we belong. When things seem to be out of control, we need grace to lift our vision higher, to remember that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. One thing Derek used to often say when he would preach is, he would say, God causes good and he allows evil, but he ordains all things. And in a world that today is full of rage against God's authority and God's design, a world that's driven by self-interest and fear, we as the people of God can shine all the more brightly as those who are in the world but not of it. Amen? The Apostle Paul reminded the church of this in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, in verse 12 and following. These words, and if you want to put that up on the screen, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine, shine as lights in the world. And I love this. It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul, this is Paul speaking, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, he says, you, you church, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so he says, rejoice and be glad. And the reason that we can be glad and rejoice with the apostle is because of what we find here in Psalm 21. Namely, that God's purposes and plan for his people, all that he desired to accomplish by sending Christ, can never be thwarted or frustrated. Even when it seems like it is. This psalm emphasizes the unfailing success and victory that God's power has brought to his anointed king. And this victory extends forever without end. This is the solid ground. This is the cornerstone that produces confidence in us who are in Christ, living under his lordship, that even in the worst of circumstances, our inheritance is secure. 
It is as secure as Christ is himself. Amen? Isaiah the prophet said this, See, I lay, in, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and the one who believes will never be shaken. Boy, we need that in our world today, don't we? We need to be reminded that the one who believes will never be shaken. Luther said it this way in his famous hymn. I love this verse from the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go and this mortal life also The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? And as I think of this unshakable kingdom, I'm reminded of Psalm 2. We studied that a while back. That though the nations rage and leaders in power carry out their plans, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, yet the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord mocks them, and then he will rebuke them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And I can imagine the Lord's voice thundering, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, the earth belongs to him and the nations are his inheritance. And his word declares to all those who are in opposition to it, and to him, both here and abroad. He says this, He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we, the church, his people, his holy nation, the ones who are his possession, the blessed ones who have taken refuge in him, we can stand up in the midst of of this crooked and perverse generation and with one united prophetic voice we can declare Be wise, O kings. Be admonished, O judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in your rebellion. For his wrath is quickly kindled. I want to tell you today that when things are shaking and our world is being destabilized, we need to be reminded Were we in our own strength to confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Jesus Christ. It is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. We will find in this psalm the assurance that our king, who is the king of kings, exercises his power and will never fail in his objectives. He is working all things for his glory and for the good of his people, his chosen elect people. Amen? So in this psalm, Psalm 21, this is a companion psalm to Psalm 20. And these two psalms share the same preface to the chief musician or the choir master, a psalm of David. 
But this psalm logically connects with the previous psalm. Psalm 20, as Caleb spoke about last week, was a prayer before a great battle or military campaign where King David and the people of Israel were trusting in the victory that God would give. And here in Psalm 21, the victory has been realized, and now David is thanking God for the victory that was given. Alexander McLaren, in his commentary, summarizes the contrast as well as the connection between these two psalms. He says this, There, in Psalm 20, the people prayed for the king, but here, in Psalm 21, they give thanks for him. There, they ask that his desires might be fulfilled, but here, they bless Jehovah who has fulfilled them. There, the battle was impending, but here, it has been won, even though foes are still in the field. So verse 1 begins by saying this, The king rejoices in the strength and the salvation of God. And as with many of the Psalms, David intends himself here in the description, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, the language transcends David's situation, and it finds its fullest fulfillment in the triumph and the victory of David's greater son, Jesus. Even in the early Jewish writings, the words of this psalm were understood to be speaking of the Messiah who was to come. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, says, The ancient Jewish Targum, which was the Chaldean paraphrase of the Old Testament and the Talmud, render the word king in verse 1. The king rejoices in the strength and salvation of God. The Targum renders that word as Melech Mashiach, which means King Messiah. So they, they understood even in the early days that the, the words of this psalm were speaking of the Messiah who was to come, and not just David alone. And so if we look at this psalm from a 10,000-foot view, we see two outcomes that are brought about by the exercise of God's strength. In a nutshell, this psalm is based upon the contrast in the way that God uses his power on the one hand to reward the king and how he uses his power to destroy his enemies. And I want to look for a minute here at the power that's revealed to, that destroys the enemies. We see in the last several verses, concluding with verse 13, his strength is referred to in its destructive force toward any that would stand in unbelief and opposition to it. His strength is a threat to the arrogant pride of men who hate God. And he says, starting in verse 8, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. And then it concludes by saying this, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. 
Isn't it interesting? I think it's interesting that he concludes this section by saying, we will sing and praise your power. I mean, how is it that people being consumed by fire and swallowed up in wrath would be cause for singing and praise? I think the reason we will praise him is because his judgments are always right. Though God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, we will be standing in awe and praise. For how can the judge of all the earth not do what is just? Everything that God does is worthy of praise. The same right hand that upholds and protects those who take refuge in Christ is the same hand that will confound and put to shame those who strive against God, those who are incensed against him. And he will get glory both in the salvation of his people, but also he will get glory in the ultimate destruction of his enemies. And we will praise him for all of it. I was recently considering why I enjoy watching some of those retributive justice movies. Uh, You know, movies like Rambo, Last Blood. (laughs) Or uh, maybe you've seen The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. Or maybe uh, even the first Taken movie with Liam Neeson. Now, I, I, I will say, the second and third one, I don't know, they, they weren't as good, but I thought the first one was, was, I enjoyed that one. But I'm sure you can relate. There's, there's, there's a dissatisfaction, there's, a, there's an angst in our souls when evil is carried out against an innocent or unsuspecting party. And we long for the resolution We want to see the glory of justice being served. And it really is a glorious thing and satisfying thing when evil is punished and justice prevails. I mean, how unsatisfying is it when a thief gets away with stealing or a murderer is never caught or held accountable? We love to see justice served. And oftentimes we appoint ourselves to administer that justice in whatever ways we think it needs to be served. And so God reminds us in Romans 12, verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Fallen humanity wants to deliver justice on its own terms, and so people create a lot of twisted ideas of what it should look like for justice to be served. I mean, you have everything from mob justice to vigilante justice. But the second half of this psalm reminds us that God is the one who will settle every account. And therefore, we can be free in light of that to practice forgiveness and restraint. For as much as God is glorious and worthy to be praised for his mercy, he is also glorious and worthy to be praised for being just. And we will praise him for both. Romans chapter 9 gives us even a fuller picture. And I want to read some of that uh, in light of what we've been talking about here. For he says to Moses, this is verse 15 in chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And so we've looked at, at one side of the contrast where his strength is revealed in the destruction of his enemies, the vessels of wrath. But now I want to look, I want us to see the other side of the contrast, how his strength is revealed in the success of the king and in the preservation of what Paul calls the vessels of mercy. That's you and me, the vessels of mercy. Amen? And it's important to remember that as we focus here on God's power, that we don't forget to keep in view the fullness of his character and who he is. We need to remember that God is first and foremost a father before he's anything else. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this, Jesus tells us explicitly in John seventeen twenty four, Father, he says, you loved me before the creation of the world. And that, said Reeves, is the God that's revealed by Jesus Christ. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. And I think C.S. Lewis brings important perspective to this as well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. Susan is surprised since she assumed Aslan was a man. And she then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, he's, but he's good. He's the king. So in his goodness, this powerful father, our heavenly father, invites us to draw near to him. See, because raw power in and of itself would not cause anyone to turn to him. We must understand that he is inherently a father, an outgoing, life-giving God who causes us to receive from his fullness. Author Liz Wan, in an article entitled Always Safe or Always Good, Never Safe, said this The other nations surrounding Israel 
had crafted gods of their own who were not perceived as safe. They feared punishment from their gods, and so they made sacrifices and followed strict rules and traditions. But the God of Israel, the true God, was not looking for this type of fear, but a fear that was birthed out of the knowledge of his character. God is big, scary, and powerful. But unlike the other gods of the nations, this God is also lowly, humble, compassionate, loving, forbearing, and personal. The Israelites were meant to fear their God differently than other nations. They had to believe that he was good. Do you believe that he's good? And in verse 1 of Psalm 21, his strength is revealed as saving strength. Caleb talked about this last week. But his strength is revealed as saving strength in reference to the king and his kingdom. He says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. This is strength that invites us. It invites the king, rather, to hide underneath its shadow. This is an attractive strength. But why? Why, why is the reason, what is the reason that this strength is inviting and attractive? The reason is because it comes, firstly, from one who is good. And secondly, it comes for the king's benefit. It is that strength which flows from a good father. Now we know from the testimony of Scripture that Christ as king is not only the source and executive of divine strength, but I want us to see specifically how he humbled himself. In Philippians 2 we read that he emptied himself to become the perfect agent through whom the Father would display his strength and empower the Son to carry out his purposes. He was the one who would receive all the benefits of divine strength. And this king, our king, would be successful in all that he asked for and all that he undertook on our behalf through his incarnation as the son of David. Amen? In verse 2, it says of this king, You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. And I just want to park there for a moment and think about this statement as it relates to Christ. It says, You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. There were many things that Jesus prayed for, but I want to point us to just one New Testament passage where we find Jesus praying and expressing the desire of his heart, voicing his requests. So if you'll turn to John chapter 17, this is the chapter where we find Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he's praying for his disciples. John chapter 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and I have come to know in truth. And, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am praying not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And here's his request. Here's the request of his lips. He says, keep them, Holy Father, in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. And he continues down farther. I'll skip down to verse uh, 14 and 15. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he continues, sanctify them in the, in the truth. Your word is truth. And down farther into verse 23 and 24, Jesus continues with his request. He says, I, <clears throat> um, let me back up here, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as, and love them even as you love me. And then he, he expresses the desire of his heart. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, that's a long passage that I, I just read, but I want to go back to this verse 1 and 2 in Psalm 21. And listen to what it says in verse 2. It says, You have given this king, speaking of Christ, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. And so we just looked here in, in John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for his disciples, the ones he has chosen. But what is he praying for us? He prays that we be kept in his name. He prays that we not be taken out of the world, but that we be kept from the evil one. He prays that we be sanctified or set apart in the truth of his word. And he prays that we would be one as the Father and Christ are one. 
And he even expresses his heart's desire in this passage. He says that they would be with me where I am to see my glory. What a thought that all these things are a guarantee for the child of God. Because what does he say in verse 2 here? He says, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Jesus' prayers get answered. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Jesus' prayers get answered. And that is good news. Can you hear Christ rejoicing over you today? As he says, I have prayed for you. Steve, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Caleb, I have prayed for you that you would be kept from the evil one. Amen? Amen. I have prayed for you that you would be sanctified, set apart in the truth. For my desire is that you would be with me to see my glory. And my request will not be withheld. My heart's desire will be granted. Jesus' prayers always get answered. That deserves a praise break right there. (laughs) Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. Amen? One commentator said this. He said, God's goodness is still so great towards his children that he often gives them much more than they even have the courage to ask or to hope. And so as we close today, I want to look at verses 4 through 7 here. It says this of the king. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. This king... The one who gave up his life on Calvary was given life again after the third day. And now he sits with exceeding gladness at the right hand of the Father forever and ever. God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning, I am so glad that I have someone praying for me whose prayers are always heard, whose requests will never be denied. And so our hope can be strengthened today because the King of Kings, our King, was worthy to carry out the purpose and plan of God. He bought us with the price of his own precious blood, and Christ doesn't lose what he bought. As long as Christ lives, his believers must likewise live. For his life 
is their life. And so as Caleb and the musicians get ready to lead us, I wanted to share a recording uh, this morning of of a song that is called Christ is My Life. And this is a song that Derek and I wrote um, recently for Derek's latest recording project. And uh, as you guys get ready to cue up the track here, um, I want you to listen to the words. And I hope it will help us see how to apply the message we've heard this morning. And so I'll just read some of these lyrics from this song as Kenneth's getting ready to cue the track up here. Set your minds on things above. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is nothing in the world today that can take his love away or can ever separate. Christ is your life. Christ is my life, and he will one day appear, and we will arise into his light and see the morning is here.